Welcome to the ABCs of Matrescence. We are two mamas, Emma and Mackenzie. We both have toddler age boys. And here on our podcast, we chat all things real motherhood from A to Z and absolutely everything in between. Matrescence is the process of becoming a mother, and that is what we dive into on each and every episode. So thank you so much for joining us. If you've listened to our podcast before, you may recognize my voice. I'm Mackenzie, and hello. I'm flying solo tonight without my faithful sidekick, but... Well, Emma and I will be back together in no time, as you know, but this evening I have the great pleasure of being joined by Dr. Molly Millwood, and she is here to chat with me all about her book, all about her clinical work, and all about her own experiences as a mother. So thank you so much for being with us tonight, Dr. Millwood. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I'm just going to share a little bit more here to give everybody a bit of a context about our special guest. So Dr. Millwood holds a PhD in clinical psychology with an emphasis in marital therapy and intimate relationships. After her postdoctoral fellowship at Stanford, she became a tenured professor and clinical supervisor at St. Michael's College in Vermont. So after 15 years of juggling her academic career with a private practice, Dr. Millwood now practices psychotherapy full-time, specializing in couples and women navigating the transition to parenthood. In 2019, she published her book, To Have and to Hold, Motherhood, Marriage, and the Modern Dilemma, which approaches the pivotal season of life that is matrescence and explores this topic from an academic, clinical, and personal perspective. So this was a book that I had the pleasure of reading this past summer. And in my opinion, this book should be required reading for all expectant and new mothers, including their partners and or support persons. So it is a book that I cannot recommend more highly, and we'll be diving into it more here on this interview. Dr. Millwood lives in Vermont with her husband and her two sons. So we are off. Thank you so much for joining me, and I am thrilled to have a chance to sit down with you. Would you mind sharing with our audience just a little bit more about yourself and your family? Yes. Um, actually, before I do that, I just want to say thank you again for having me. Uh, it really does feel like an honor and a privilege to be able to have conversations like this with other women who share my passion for promoting women's well-being, particularly women's well-being in motherhood. So uh, it really is a pleasure for me. It's something I very much enjoy. And thank you also for those kind words about my book. <laughs> yes, it, it's it's definitely a, a very mutual feeling here. We are we are equally as thrilled to have you on our podcast. So thank you. Like I mentioned earlier, starstruck would be the word. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Uh, so yeah, a little bit more about me and my family. So. Uh, um, as you said, I fairly recently decided to leave my academic position so that I could focus in a full-time way on uh, doing therapy because that was just increasingly where my where my heart was, where my heart is. Um, and I work primarily with, I would say, about 50% individuals and 50% couples. And the individuals that I see tend to be women. So really that combination of, you know, working with women and working with couples, I would say that that probably reflects um, what my greatest passion is as a psychologist. And that is helping people understand the connection between their well-being as individuals and the well-being of their relationships their primary relationship or their marriage. And that connection is especially strong for women. It's strong for all human beings. Um, but the, the research very consistently tells a story of uh, women's depression, women's, you know, various forms of distress that women experience emotionally is often rooted in, um, in their relationship challenges or in the lack of a strong bond in their relationship. So um, I love working with couples. I love working with women and particularly women who have recently become mothers or even not so recently, but are grappling with everything that's challenging about motherhood. Um, so that's what I do professionally. And I, as you mentioned, I have two sons. Um, they could not be more different from each other. Uh, just, you know, incredibly different personalities and both keep us on our toes. <laughs> um, 
and they're really not so young anymore. It took me quite a long time to bring this book to fruition. When I first started writing it, my, my older son was a baby, uh, and he is now 15, and my younger son is 10. And we live in a little mountain town in Vermont with our dog named Poppy, <laughs> the one other woman in the house. <laughs> Wonderful. It's, it's really, it's in, just incredible to, to think now the, obviously the boys are so much older, but you write about those first few days, moments, months, years mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. such a rawness and such an awareness that it was helpful for me because at the time reading it, my son Emerson, now he's 20 months, but over the summer, he was 15 months, 16 months or so when I was reading your mm-hmm. book. And I remember feeling like, yes, she, this is, yes, she gets me. She knows <laughs> this is, you know, and obviously, you know, thinking back for me, the him being a newborn was, was just a year away. So I yeah. think it's wonderful that you really did detail so many aspects of not even just those initial moments, but, you know, in your book, you cover the addition of a second sibling and, and mm-hmm. finding the family balance with that. And mm-hmm. so you, you might need to write a sequel, though, as you're as you're navigating the teenage years. <laughs> I've heard that from other people. <laughs> so it's one thing to write a book that describes the challenges that affect a marriage with the transition into parenthood, and quite another to share openly about one's own experiences in a memoir-like style. So you successfully combined both research and clinical findings with an intimate look at your own journey of becoming a mother and its impact on your marriage. So Dr. Millwood, in your book, To Have and to Hold, you simultaneously inform and relate closely to your readers. So this being said, would you mind just sharing a little bit more about how your book came to fruition and your desire to share so transparently about your own experience in addition to obviously presenting a lot of really important clinical facts and academic research, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Well, I wanted to write the book that I wished I could find and read when motherhood was new to me, which would be a book that uh, would help me make sense of all the ways that I was changed and changing as opposed to a book about pregnancy or a book about parenting. And uh, as we all know, there's really an abundance of those books. But at the time that I became a mother, I really could not get my hands on anything that spoke to me about what I was experiencing and why it felt like my world was turned upside down. And um you know, in some ways feeling like a stranger to myself. And I just, I, I couldn't find it. And I thought, well, maybe I, I need to write this book. <laughs> um, the word, the word matrescence wasn't even in common use the way that it is now. So, you know, I'm hopeful that things are actually changing for the far better in this regard. And certainly with podcasts like yours and so many other wonderful podcasts, there's a lot of awareness now. Um, being brought to how a woman herself is doing after having a baby and how she is changing um, and really going through so many growing pains after having a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's that's a reflection of a very positive shift in, in recent years toward recognizing the transition to motherhood as really an enormous transformation and a, and a developmental challenge for a woman in terms of the transparency, I don't, I don't necessarily think I knew until I started writing the book how important it was to be transparent about my own struggles. I didn't, I didn't exactly set out in advance to do that. I, I certainly wasn't imagining the book as a memoir, but I think nothing is a better antidote for shame than seeing your own shunned feelings, the things that you're so embarrassed about and so convinced make you a bad mother, seeing those represented in someone else's stories. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think especially as a psychologist, I have a, a certain influence or a power, I guess, if you can call it that, to to pierce through this myth that other women aren't struggling as much and that if you're educated enough or emotionally and psychologically sophisticated enough, then you're a perfect mother. So it really, it was very, you know, although it wasn't the way I set out to do it, I think as soon as I started putting, started putting words to the page, I knew that I needed to speak 
organically from my own experience and that I, and that my voice needed to be very strong. My voice as a woman and a, and a mother, um, not just, you know, kind of an authority on the subject as a psychologist mm-hmm. and on a more, on a kind of self-serving level, I work through a lot of my struggles by writing about them. So some of the passages, you know, it's funny, you were talking earlier about how I wrote about those early days and months in such a raw way. Um, probably that's because some, some of the passages in the book are straight from the journals that I was keeping when I was a new mom. So I was already writing about it, although I wasn't imagining an audience, you know, wasn't imagining that what I was writing would, would at some point become part of a published book. And, and some of the challenges that I chose to write about were very much alive and unresolved for me at the time, like maternal guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I benefited from writing in much the same way that my readers benefit from what it is that I've written. Mm-hmm. And I think that also just as a, as a tool to imagine, like if in my personal case, I was reading your book alongside with do, you know, seeing a therapist that I've, I've been seeing, um, for, for quite some time now. I think since Emerson was about, oh gosh, maybe six or so months old. So we're looking mm-hmm. at about a year and a half now. And so mm-hmm. it was, it was interesting for me to be doing my own personal work in, in that, in that sense. And oftentimes I, I feel like sometimes in the, in the therapy setting, you know, you're, you're, it's very much like it's about you. You don't, you know, I, I don't go to my therapy sessions and ask my therapist about her experiences right. with X, Y, or Z, you know? Right. So and if we, you did, she probably wouldn't tell you. <laughs> that is, And that is precisely the truth. So what was unique is that, you know, in a way, I'm already kind of doing some self-exploration, but then in reading your book and you go so deep into what you also went through, I, I just find that there's a lot of, I mean, there's solidarity there. There's a lot of like kinship. There's, um, you know, just a lot of reminders that this experience that we go through at times we're so focused individually on maybe coming to terms with it, understanding that, whether that's with therapy or speaking with a partner or a friend, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. to be able to read about it in the context of this is a real thing and what you're feeling is real because look, I felt this way as well. Um, I I found that to be very powerful in your book. I'm so glad I have gotten that feedback a lot. And I mean, if I ever had any doubt or concern about being transparent in the book, it has all been put to rest by that kind of feedback. I think that's why it speaks to so many women. Mm-hmm. I would agree. So you open your book with a powerful quote from Esther Perel, and it reads, quote, having a baby is a psychological revolution that changes our relation to almost everything and everyone, end quote. So it's pretty much safe to say that I never, not even for a millisecond, entertained the idea that bringing my son into the world would be a, quote, psychological revolution. And in fact, if you had said that to me, like casually in my baby shower, I might have looked at you like you had three heads. Because <laughs> right. in my mind, I would have said, I'm pregnant, I'm having a baby, like, this is great. I mean, I was studying about the birth plans and wanting this unmedicated birth. And I had all the nursery stuff and the clothes and maybe how I was going to have him sleep ideally, which is laughable now. Emma and I always joke about that. Um, but never in my mind did it even cross the thought waves of this could be a psychological revolution. And yet that is precisely what it was. Undoubtedly, that is so exact. So I'm wondering if you could please, Dr. Millwood, expound a little bit on how this quote truly sets the stage for the insight that you hope your readers will learn and gain through reading your book. How is this kind of the, um, you know, the the entryway to what you what you hope that they will they will receive back from from your text? Well, I just think the way we talk about motherhood. Um, so just think of you know, two of the most common phrases, which would be a new addition. Um, so, you know, thinking about this, this picture you just painted of you at, at, at your baby shower. And if I had said to you, you know, that <laughs> this was, you were about to undergo a psychological revolution. You I probably would have been like, if you had a cupcake, do you want a cupcake? Eat a cupcake. <laughs> right. right. And, and you were probably thinking, you know, I'm, I'm, adding to my life. I'm adding, you know, we're building a family. I'm bringing home a new addition. Um, and then the other phrase that I just so readily comes to mind is bouncing back. You know, people talk about how you bounce back from birth and, um, those kinds of phrases 
are, are really just all wrong because having a baby or adopting a baby is not just adding one more thing to an equation, making, making the sum total bigger. Um, and it isn't a temporary change that one undergoes and then sort of reverts back to the way things once were, or, you know, goes back to quote unquote normal. It's really a total metamorphosis. It, it changes our relationship with our spouse or our partner. It changes our relationship with ourselves. It changes our relationship with our own parents, with our friends, um, with the past and how we were brought up. That's something that I wrote about quite a bit in the book. Um, and even changes our relationship with time you know, which was another thing I wrote about kind of telling these stories of feeling like I've been in a hurry ever since I had children. And, you know, that I relate to time as um, particularly solitude time, you know, time to be alone, which is so precious to me and so important for my well-being um, that I relate to that differently. And, you know, the, I'm sure there are other things I could name in terms of all of the things that are I would argue radically changed by, by having a baby. So I guess the biggest insight I wanted my readers to have is that there's absolutely nothing wrong with them for finding motherhood to be a totally destabilizing experience mm -hmm. because matrescence is a metamorphosis. It's not a temporary blip or disruption. But because that kind of, I mean, that's the narrative. It's such a powerful, completely misleading narrative in our society that women have a baby. It's a little bit of a disruption for a while and then everything goes back to normal. Mm -hmm. And because of that, so many women um, are wondering, they're not only experiencing all of what is inherently challenging about motherhood, but the whole time they're wondering what's wrong with them that it's such a challenge. And why haven't they, you know, gotten back to normal? So I wanted my readers to have a, a framework, a language for describing and really honoring the fundamental changes and the, the irreversible changes that all women undergo when they become mothers. Um, and I wanted my readers to understand that nobody comes through the transition to motherhood unscathed. Mm. I think that there's a real, um, there's a very unfortunate tendency in, in the human species <laughs> toward, toward um, dichotomous thinking, you know, so like either you have uh, postpartum depression or some other perinatal mood or anxiety disorder, or you don't. And if you don't, then everything's fine. Mm -hmm. um, and which was another, you know, topic in the book, writing about postpartum transformation, as opposed to postpartum depression. And that if we look at it as a transformation, we expect a full spectrum of struggling, suffering, distress, um, whether it's clinically diagnosable or not. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the things that was most powerful to me in, in reading your book was that it gave me a chance to say, you know, I've had this stirring, this feeling a lot of, I do miss my past life. I do miss mm -hmm. the way things were. And in reading your book, I felt like all of a sudden I could take ownership of those feelings and mm -hmm. I could say, I do really feel that way. And that's okay. Like yeah. it, it doesn't have to be, you know, I feel that way, but I still really love my child. You know, right. I can, I can right. say like, it's very okay to miss the way that things used to be in my life with, you know, whether it's career or, or marriage or friendships or just how I spend my time comparative to now, it can just simply like, they can, both things can, can exist. It almost gave me permission to say, I miss my old life, period. And then I love my son immeasurably, period. And have those two mm. phrases just exist in the same space and have it be completely okay. Ah, oh, that is so wonderful. I can't tell you how happy it makes me to hear that, to hear that that is the effect or, or one effect that my book had on you. I mean, that, like that kind of 
transformation in the way that we talk to ourselves and that opening up of space where these seemingly contradictory ideas, these things that can sort of make us crazy, um, can just coexist. There's room for it all. So yeah. thank you for sharing that that change has happened for you. That's really powerful. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it just is something that you, you can, it's like once you're aware of it, then you kind of realize you can, you can see it in a lot of, a lot of different places too. The times where you feel like you say, Oh my gosh, you know, today was just such a rough day in toddler land. And, but, but, you know, I'm so grateful to be a mom. It's like, I find myself, I get to kind of say, wait a second, I get to be grateful to be a mom and think my kid is driving me insane today. And Mm -hmm. that's okay. Mm -hmm. So. That's yes. definitely something that, that Emma and I chat about a lot. You know, we're, we're very good friends, so we're constantly in communication with each other. And if one's not saying it, the other is reminding the other <laughs> to say, it's okay. Like, this is, this is just the way things are. So Yeah. And that, by the way, is a beautiful thing to be able to go through this period of time with a close friend like that. I mean, that is just, I think that's such a, um, such a resource, such a buffer against, um, the the worst of the distress that can happen, you know, full-blown depression, for instance. I think that that's a lot less likely when we have really good friends to carry us through. I would agree. And when we're willing to take that that leap to be a little bit vulnerable to get there, because yes. it feels... It feels like people, when they ask, oh, how are you? How's the baby? Or now, you know, how's how's the little guy? Because, you know, he's obviously not a tiny baby anymore. They're asking that question and waiting for me to beam back at them, show them a picture on my iPhone, <laughs> and tell them about how settled into motherhood I am. They're not waiting for me to say, well, you know, my husband right now has a really difficult rotation. We're feeling the strain at home. I'm feeling fried at both ends. I'm trying desperately to teach an online class. And it's, you know, that's not what they want to hear. Right. But when you have, like you said, that friend. Like, I mean, Emma hears all of that, you know, six times a day and just having somebody that you can be open with and who also will reflect back kind of some truths too and, and it kind of put you in your place when you need it, um, I think is helpful. So, so yeah, yeah the, the yeah. community building is, is so key. It's so important. So through your research, clinical experience, and personal journey, you have seen and understood firsthand how having a baby can literally be like, quote, throwing a hand grenade into a marriage, unquote. And again, another very apropos quote that I'm, if someone had written again in a card at the baby shower, (laughs) good luck with the hand grenade, right? Um, So what do you think, Dr. Millwood? it is that makes parenthood such a difficult transition for a couple to go through. So what role does the quote mother load, you know, obviously the mental load that, that we as moms carry tie into the tensions that exist between a couple as they delve into parenthood. So it feels like we don't just have parenthood. We also get parenthood as well as being moms carrying that mental mother load. Right. Well, so this, that is a huge question. This is essentially what I've devoted my career to understanding. <laughs> um, so I'm going to try to be concise, um, kind of distill it down to what I think are um, the two key reasons that having a baby is like throwing a hand grenade into a marriage. And that quote, by the way, I wish I could take credit for that because it's so fabulous, but it was Nora Ephron who said that. Um, the, the filmmaker. Um, so I think the best way to understand the reason that this is such a tumultuous time for couples is that it, they are experiencing a, a, what I call kind of a double whammy, um, which is first and foremost, there is an attachment drama that is unfolding when a couple has a baby. And I will explain what I mean by that in a moment, but I just want to say what the other piece of the double whammy is, um, which is that couples are reverting most of the time when they have a baby to traditional gender roles, no matter how um, non-traditional or no matter how progressive and egalitarian a couple was before they had a baby, research shows so clearly 
that um, that couple is highly likely to take on more traditional gender roles once there's a baby in the house. And what that essentially means is that women are going to be in the primarily caretaking domestic sphere and men are going to be working and earning an income and much less involved in the care of the baby. And that fact, um, meaning, you know, the phenomenon that this occurs for a vast majority of couples, um, is uh, so few people realize that. And most couples, I think, even if they heard about that finding, they would say, oh, that's not going to be us, right? Like, we're not going to be that way. Um, so I think, so I want to go back to and really kind of emphasize the attachment piece for a moment, but just to sort of paint the bigger picture here, when you go through a trying time, ideally, your marriage or your your partnership, if you're not married, um, is a buffer, is something that kind of protects you and carries you through that hard time. But in the transition to parenthood, the marriage itself is destabilized. The marriage itself is taxed in ways that I'll kind of go into some more detail about in a, in a moment. And that is such a big part of why a typical new mother struggles so much. Mm. So, you know, it would be a wonderful thing if all of what is difficult about motherhood could be experienced against this backdrop of a really stable kind of unchanged, strong, solid marriage or committed relationship. But that is not the way it goes. The way it goes for a vast majority of people is that there's all of what's so difficult about having a baby, these things that you and I have both been referencing so far. Um, and as that's happening, what's also happening is that the, the relationship that um, we would ordinarily be counting on as that kind of safe haven or bedrock of support um, has been um, also changed, you know, that it too is undergoing a sort of metamorphosis. Um, and yeah, it's kind of like we're maybe standing on shifting sand at a time, you know, we're facing something really hard and the ground beneath our feet seems less stable. So it, I mean, I, I feel like that just captures why it's such a, an incredibly difficult time for most women, whether you have some sort of, you know, obvious or diagnosable um, perinatal, perinatal uh, mood or anxiety disorder. You know, it's like this is just the normal trajectory for, for everyone, mm -hmm. even if you're lucky enough not to suffer from depression or anxiety. Mm -hmm. So... Um, a little bit more about the attachment drama because that really is a, it's such a wonderful way of of um, explaining and understanding why it is that the marriage um, is also under undergoing a, a metamorphosis metamorphosis of sorts so this I mean like I said a minute ago it's attachment theory is um, you know, I could talk all night about it, <laughs> um, you know, and there's so much to say about it, but I, I want to try to just um, speak to the most important part in terms of your question, um, which is to say that, that our primary um, romantic relationship, I'm trying to use inclusive language, but you know, our marriage or our committed relationship, that that is really predicated on this concept of an attachment bond as a parent-child relationship. So most people are familiar with attachment theory or the concept of attachment within a parent-child relationship. And far fewer people think about attachment as it relates to adult romantic intimacy. Mm. Um, but that is exactly what an adult romantic relationship is. It's an attachment bond. So from an attachment theory perspective, we are we are wired to form bonds with a few key, treasured, irreplaceable others. Um, namely, you know, a, a romantic partner and maybe a couple of friends in adulthood. Um, and that the, 
that bond is built on emotional attunement, that in order to build and maintain and preserve a bond, we need to be emotionally connected to each other. And that connection is really our greatest resource in life. It is what, when we have a secure, strong connection with at least one other person, we are resilient. We can face the various challenges that are thrown our way. Um, and so in, in the transition to parenthood, it's, you know, one of the greatest challenges that there is. And yet the bond, it's not, I mean, I, I would not be so dramatic as to say that that bond is, you know, shattered or destroyed when people have babies, but there is less of a sense of security. And the reason for that is that you're no, it's no longer just the two of you kind of oriented toward each other, pouring all of your heart and soul into each other and paying close attention to each other. Instead, you've both shifted your attention to a new third party. Mm -hmm. And it's essentially in an attachment relationship, you're asking the question, are you there for me? Like that's the big million dollar question. Are you there for me? Will you know, do you have my back? Will you be my shelter in this stormy time? Is it safe to be vulnerable with you? And we really need the answer to that to be sort of unequivocally, yes. Mm -hmm. But when a couple goes through this transformation, be, you know, they move from being a couple to a family with a, with a baby, it's actually a lot harder to get an affirmative answer to that question because um, both both people are, you know, on one level, you could say both people are now preoccupied with someone else, rightfully so, right? That this, <laughs> this baby needs and deserves all of this sort of careful, close attention. And um, women in, in particular, because of what I was saying about the reverting to, to traditional gender roles, you know, women are often literally spending all of their time in caretaking mode and giving everything that they have to their baby. Whereas men in a traditional arrangement, you know, men will be off at work um, and far less involved in the care of the baby. So I think that women are asking, are you there for me? Really rather directly, um, like needing more hands-on instrumental support from their male partners much of the time. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, one of the most robust findings in the research literature in terms of what protects couples from really taking a nosedive in their marital satisfaction when they have a baby is father involvement. So the, the more fathers are involved in that hands-on care of the baby, the stronger that couple is likely to be. Men, I think, might be asking something a little more like, am I still special to you? Do I still matter to you as, as much as I once did? Or, or where do I fit in here? Um, but really, they're both essentially asking that same question of, you know, are you there for me? Or, or where did you go? You know, that's an, when, when, the, when the attachment bond isn't feeling so secure. I think the question behind a lot of conflict that couples have is where did you go? I, I'm looking for you. I need you. I can't find you. You know, metaphor. The person could be right there in the room, but, you know, feeling, feeling miles away. Mm -hmm. So um, that was fairly long-winded when I said I was going to try to be concise. But I, I mean, I think the most important point here is that these two things, the kind of reverting to um, traditional roles, lack equity is in, in sharing the demands of child rearing and the attachment crisis. I mean, the way that those affect, I think is like, that's, that's the heart of the matter. That is how all of these challenges arise. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that your, that your analogy with the, with the standing on the quicksand is such a perfect one because it's like you're, you know, on one hand, you're trying to keep certain aspects of your marriage intact but you're trying to do it, like you said, in, in a very treacherous terrain. It's not a right. normal circumstance. So I find that even now, like, you know, months after the initial months, right? Because I mean, we're rounding the rounding to year two here. 
I, I find that, you know, my husband and I will be in the middle of a conversation, which could be an example of trying to create that, that connection or that attachment, what have you, even if it's something brief, just talking about our days, but he's sharing a story or I'm bringing up something that, you know, went on with family or whatnot. And then all of a sudden, then there's the toddler that needs our attention that exact right. second. Right. So then bam, the sand, sw- the sand shifts and we're both, we're both falling. And then our conversation is ripped completely apart. One of us is tending to the toddler. And even if there's not even, I mean, there's no angst, there's no anger, there's nothing upset. I realize sometimes an hour or so evening together over dinner and, and you know, the, the post dinner routine, it's so fragmented. I mean, if yes. you ask me, how was my husband's day today? I could tell you a few like slices of information carried for this patient. Talk to this coworker about this. Did It's not even like I had... A, a span of time longer than maybe 90 seconds of right. him talking straight through. Or some through. sort of cohesive yeah. story could be told. Exactly. Yeah, fragmented yeah. is such a good word. I remember thinking, you know, am I ever going to have an uninterrupted conversation again? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So I'm really, I, I know you also asked about mother load and I did want to touch on that. Yes, just, please. Um, briefly in terms of tie- tying that into these tensions. Um, Yes, please that, do. That's that's definitely yeah. Yeah, I mean, I really, I just wanted to say that I, I think that it, it plays a huge part, and I think what I want to emphasize is that it isn't it isn't just the mental load itself and how heavy that is to carry. I mean, that that in itself is such a tremendous um, issue, a tremendous part of. Um, women's kind of individual burden as mothers and also a huge part of the, the question of why is it that couples are struggling so much because that, that discrepancy exists. You know, men are, are fairly well insulated from the same mental burden that can be really crippling for women, debilitating for women. So it's that discrepancy that really plants the seed for for so much um, resentment. But anyway, it's it's not just the load itself being so heavy to carry. I think it's also that we don't feel seen or understood, that, that we feel like our partners have no idea what it's like to be inside our skin, how, how busy and overwhelming it is inside our brain. Um, and that really goes back to this attachment piece, that what we most want is to feel that this one critically important person in our lives with whom we have an attachment bond, um, that that person really sees us and, and gets us, even if they don't take some of the burden away in a kind of pragmatic or, or literal way, you know, like get, delegate some of these things that you're walking around so um, burdened by all the time. I mean, that that's nice also <laughs> when that happens. But I think you know, more important in terms of nurturing the attachment connection, the attachment bond is to, is to feel seen, to feel like our partners really understand what it's like. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to touch on that a little bit. Well, I definitely appreciate you doing that because this is actually an episode that Emma and I have on deck coming up here and in, in the next month or so, just to discuss a little bit more, what truly has the mother load been to us and how at times it can feel so challenging to articulate to our husbands. You know, yeah. like I, I, sometimes I'll just all of a sudden have this just like wave of just the over, the wave that the wave entitled overwhelmed, right? That crashes on you. And when I sit there and try to say, okay, what am I feeling overwhelmed about? I find that like the, the list of what I'm saying, every little thing seems so small, mm-hmm. but yet they build up and it, it just, it can feel overwhelming. And it's yeah. just that feeling of like, I just need you to hear this list and, and help me kind of absorb it. And then maybe we delegate a little, but you're also just simply there to say, Hey, look, I hear you. I see you and just be that pillar of support at that time. So yeah, yeah. that's it's definitely, definitely a challenging aspect to, to say the least. So one thing that we did want to, I guess, 
to be quite honest, take advantage of your phenomenal expertise on here, um, <laughs> is discussing the topic of coupled relationships and motherhood. So we are wondering if it's possible to share with you just a couple um, listener scenarios that, that were shared with us, and wondering if you could just shed a little bit of light on how the following marital or relational situations could be handled. And these can just be your your real quick rapid fire, I guess. Mm-hmm. How would you um, go a word of wisdom or a piece of advice um, for these, if, if you wouldn't mind, I would love to mm-hmm. give sure. you a couple of those. So the first scenario here is that mom is exclusively breastfeeding her three-month-old and feels unsure about where dad fits into the mix since she handles all the feedings. So how could she engage her husband more in the day-to-day tasks? So, you know, what comes to mind here is that I, I actually think the question needs to be a little bit different in the sense that we... I think, you know, we're striving for equality. So I just got done talking about this reverting to traditional gender roles and how much, um, how many problems that causes for a couple. Um, We clearly need enormous social change in order to allow for partnerships in which that load is divided and shared relatively equally. Um, But we're not there yet. And I think in the striving for equality, you know, like, well, I'm doing all the feedings, so he needs to do X, Y, and Z things to kind of compensate for that. Mm-hmm. In the striving for equality, I think sometimes that we get, we get, it gives us tunnel vision and, and we don't see that maybe what we need is not for him to do 50% of the baby care, you know, like, well, I'm doing the feeding, so you do one, two, three, four, five things that all have to do with baby care to make up for all these feedings. Um, But rather what we need is for our husbands to support us differently or better as we do 90% of the baby care. Hmm. Does that make sense? It does. So kind of shifting it from, you know, how can I get him more involved to, okay, I'm doing a lot of the baby care what kind of support do I need from him mm. at in order to be able to do these things? And that support could be very instrumental, but it could be more more um, emotional, you know, could tie in back to what I was saying before about just wanting to feel seen during this particularly taxing hard season where we are doing more than they are, you know, that, that that's just, and in no way am I arguing that that you know, men should be off the hook or women should have to do do it all. I mean, that's far from my argument here. But I think that sometimes people get caught up in the idea of fairness or even scorekeeping um, and that that doesn't serve anybody well. So Mm -hmm. I like that, just reframing that and thinking about, you know, what are some other ways that dad can be involved and not necessarily specifically related to, to what the baby needs. So, right. Thank you. So next example here is a touched out mama of two kiddos feels like she never has anything left at the end of the day for her partner. Even snuggling or cuddling can feel like too much, yet she yearns for the intimacy that they used to share. So what can she do to reconnect with her partner without feeling suffocated? Okay, so I would say that first she needs to give voice to the paradox here that it actually is possible to miss someone and the intimacy that once existed while simultaneously wanting that person to stay back and, <laughs> and not encroach um, on her personal space because she's touched out. So talking about that is key. Um, and, and the next thing would be to find some ways to build intimacy that don't involve physical touch. Hmm. So, you know, talking about um, how you look forward to a time when physical connecting sounds more appealing Um, you know, being able to say like right now, it's really not what I need. Uh, I need space at the end of the day more than anything, but I know the time will come 
when I crave that again, when I really want to be physically close to you. So just talking about that future point in time um, is a form of intimacy. Sharing meaningful things about what's going on internally, you know, that would be um, an alternative kind of intimacy. And when that's too hard, because, you know, engaging in a meaningful conversation also requires energy that a new mom may not have, then watching a TV show that can, can really qualify as a kind of connection and intimacy. What was that last one? Do you mind just repeating? Like watching a TV show oh, together. Gotcha. gotcha. Yes. Something that's that you can do when, you know, just sort of getting into a vegetative state when there's nothing left at the end of the day, if you're doing that together with your partner, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a shared activity, you know, it's not a deep connecting in a, you know, sexual or, um, emotional way, but it's still a form of connection. Mm -hmm. So I was just kind of listing some examples of other kinds of of intimacy that don't involve physical touch. Fantastic. I, I like, appreciate those suggestions a lot. And I think that is definitely something that we experience as, as mom, especially in those first few months above all, right. When, yeah. when it just feels, everything feels so challenging to, to picture anything like it was before, especially intimacy and connection, physical connection too. So, right. And next up, we have a new mom who is feeling like she is struggling to process her world as a full-time mom, and she actually feels that she needs professional support, but doesn't even know where to begin in seeking help. So what do you recommend as first steps? So I love to tell everybody about Postpartum Support International, um, because that is, I mean, the, the wonderful thing about PSI is that it's easy to just go to their website and you can keep narrowing it down to um, your local area. So you can, you know, click on your state mm. and then click on your particular region within your state um, and find a list of local providers who specialize in working with women who are having a tough time in motherhood. So, you know, that's a really concrete answer to the question, but I think in, in, you know, many women who are having a tough time and knowing that they need some help can feel a little bit paralyzed. Like, how do I even begin? I have no energy. I don't know where to turn. So, you know, just plug in postpartum support international into your browser. And that is a starting a starting place. Another really good tool would be um, the psychology today, find a therapist feature, mm -hmm. um, which I think is, you know, pretty widely yes. known. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you can scroll through and find, read people's profiles and just find somebody that, you know, you like the way they sound. You like the, the way that they talk about their therapy practice and they seem approachable and you can shoot an email off to that person. So... Awesome. So, Thank you. We'll, yeah. we'll put both of these, um, these links as well, just in the show notes so that they're very available to our listeners too, if they weren't from, familiar. Yeah. I certainly was not familiar with the former PSI. So that's a wonderful okay. resource to yeah. share. So, and so the last one of our user, I should say listener scenarios here is mother of a toddler feels overwhelmed by the day-to-day -day motherhood that she has to carry. Dad is involved and helpful, but yet doesn't seem to juggle any of the balls that mom does in terms of household errands, food shopping, preparation, family communications, everything to do with feeding, clothing, educating the toddler, etc. So how could she get her husband to understand what she's experiencing and support her more effectively? So this is a really tricky thing because getting her husband to understand becomes one more thing on her list, <laughs> one more burdened burden. Um, so there, you know, there's how overwhelmed and stretched too thin women already feel. And then add to that, there's this sense of pressure to be the broacher of hard relationship topics mm -hmm. to, you know, inform or educate their partners about things with the hope that it will 
pay off. And this is actually something that comes up a lot in my practice. Um, women feeling like working on communication is just another task for them and wishing that their husbands or their partners would ever be the ones to say, hey, I've been reading this great book about intimacy and couplehood or you know, I've been reading up on disciplining toddlers. Can we have a conversation about this later? <laughs> that just how wonderful that would be. Um, it's music it's to my just, ears, really. Right, right. <laughs> right. So it's just unfortunately all too rare. And again, what we ultimately need is, is systemic change that would allow, you know, just create uh, an infrastructure that, supports women largely by putting fathers much more on the front lines of domestic and family life. Um, you know, imagine how that would be if both moms and dads were sort of equally inclined to say, I think we need to have a conversation about the way that we're parenting, or, you know, I think maybe we should see a couples therapist. Um, I do dream of a day when those words would be uttered equally by men and women. Mm -hmm. So in the meantime, I think that uh, I'll just go back to my transparency answer that I think the very best thing is to be transparent about what that load feels like, um, how it affects our feelings toward our partners. We could say something like, you know, can I just give you a little snapshot of what it looks like inside my head right now? And then list off all those things that you that you listed. Like these are all the things swimming around in my brain at all times. And when I get the sense that all of this stuff is not also on your radar, that that it's mine alone to carry, I start to feel resentful, and I don't want to feel that way toward you. Mm -hmm. So, so it's not really calling. Calling it what it is, just identifying yeah. the emotion. Exactly. Identifying the emotion. It isn't an accusation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that would sound more like, I, I am so overwhelmed and you're so unencumbered. <laughs> you know, like you're so free. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that may be a thought. That comparison, I think, is happening much of the time. But, but no, this would be just about sharing the feelings. I'm feeling... Um, you know, just another example, I'm feeling really depleted. I, I feel farther away from you when I get the impression that you're worrying about the same things that I'm worrying about. Mm -hmm. You know, so just giving voice to the depleted feeling, to the feeling far, far away or disconnected, to feeling resentful um, or, you know, not starting to feel resentful and really not wanting to feel that way. Mm -hmm. So... That's my, that I, I suppose that is my go-to answer, just giving voice to these um, internal experiences with a, a emphasis on the feelings. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that this is very much in line with, with what I was able to gather throughout the entirety of your book as well, right? That, you know, we have to be able to name and identify the emotions that we're feeling in order to... Yeah do something with them. And, and even if at times doing something with them is just, you know, you mentioned journaling or voicing mm -hmm. it to a close friend or to a support person, partner, whatever that might be, um, feeling empowered to do that. I, mm -hmm. I think, at least for me, that's been a very significant change that has happened in my life, truly just over the, the past several months. And I've found that I guess it puts me in the driver's seat of my own emotions. I'm still driving down the road with the emotions, mm -hmm. but I feel mm -hmm. like I can at least call out what I'm seeing. And yeah. so. You have great metaphors. I like that. I could picture you in the car with a bunch of emotions in the passenger seat <laughs> in the back seat. Oh, they might even be in the trunk too, but you know. <laughs> and tied to the rooftop. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Um, so before we wrap up today, I do have just you know, one, one kind of thought just to shift a little bit away from, we've talked a lot about the, the role of the partner and what that, what that's like for, for a mother. But what about a little bit about mom herself? So we're thinking about perhaps some action steps that a mother can take to feel more confident 
not only about her role as a mother, but also her own personal self-development. So at the beginning of the conversation, Dr. Mill, I liked how you touched on that, that, you know, transitioning to motherhood is, that's why it is so difficult because you go from this kind of individual identity to then a mother. And it isn't just a new addition and it isn't just something you bounce back from. It becomes a whole new state of being. Mm-hmm. And so with this in mind, you know, if you were just to, you know, to, to provide advice or suggestions for, you know, women preserving and developing their identity alongside the growth they're experiencing as mothers, is there a way to not feel like, you know, just personally, can I not put Mackenzie on the back burner because I'm now mom Mackenzie, you know, is it possible mm-hmm. to, to do that simultaneously? Um, mm-hmm. so I guess in, in, in closing our, our wonderful conversation would be just, you know, any, any reflections on, on that for guiding our, you know, our community of women here. We have ABCs and matrescents to, to tap in a little bit more to who each one of those women are. So, I mean, first of all, I think it's just important to acknowledge that there really are so many obstacles to, um, nurturing ourselves, you know, preserving our identities and even developing or furthering our identities beyond motherhood, that that is a, a very difficult um, process in the early, early phases of motherhood in particular. So I just kind of want to honor that and make sure that a woman who has um, recently had a baby is feeling like this is something else she should put on her list of things to do (laughs) Um, because that would be defeating the purpose really um you know i really think that what what women need to pay attention to and and try to reflect deeply on um is what is it that allows them to feel their best or when are they at their best And I actually think that a lot of people don't know the answer to this question, whether we're talking about motherhood or not, you know, just bringing that kind of self-awareness where you notice when you feel most alive, when do you feel most energetic, when do you get really fired up um, and, you know, feeling passionate about things? What, what, What is it that you're doing at that time? What is it that you're thinking about? So just kind of developing that kind of self-awareness, I think is a really important um, starting place. And get curious about, about this metamorphosis that's underway and assume that although it involves so many challenges and restrictions and losses, as we've been talking about, that it also is a metamorphosis that is going to unlock some some channels mm. that lead you to really wonderful places. Um, and in fact, that's you know that idea that motherhood unlocks channels that were previously closed. That is, I don't, I think, you know, I don't remember if I wrote that in the book or if that was just sort of how I started talking about it once the book came out. But I real I find that to be a really helpful metaphor that you know when we become mothers we are kind of catapulted into a fuller richer more intense array of emotion we're catapulted into a world where an emotional world where everything just feels more intense um and that's sometimes a very difficult thing and sometimes a very wonderful thing right we're experiencing sort of the extremes of joy and inspiration and the extremes of, of despair and sometimes anger and rage. Um, and so if we can maintain a kind of look for the opportunities within it, um, I think, you know, that is where there's a real sense of promise. Mm-hmm. And over the, Overcoming the obstacles that I mentioned, um, that, that I think is the hardest part and probably the biggest obstacle to focusing on ourselves and just kind of nurturing that kind of curiosity and taking the time to reflect and taking the time to sort of 
run with something that we're getting really inspired about and energized about, often it's guilt that stands in the way. Maternal guilt is just such a beast. Um, and so when it comes to that, this is another section in the book that I uh, think is so important, is just understanding that much of the guilt that we feel is really unfounded and that we need to notice that it's unfounded guilt as opposed to the really constructive kind of guilt that kind of points us toward um, better behavior if we've been behaving in a way that's out of alignment with our values. Unfounded guilt, you know, comes from perfectionism, comes from these really um, unhelpful notions of what it means to be a mother, that it means you sacrifice yourself completely. So noticing that it's unfounded guilt, you know, using the oxygen mask analogy, even though that's so cliche <laughs> that we need to put our own oxygen mask on first um, before we put on the mask of our child or anyone else. It's really, I mean, there's a reason. It's really apt that we cannot care for others if we don't care for ourselves. We can't pour from an empty cup. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, these various strategies for overcoming the guilt that I think um, trails behind most women when they try to do something good for themselves. That's it. That's half the battle right there. Mm -hmm. And then the other half would be, as I said, just really um, learning about ourselves, learning what it is that um, makes us come alive, and then trying to walk in that direction. You know, it's so interesting hearing you say this because you discuss this explicitly in your book. I remember you writing about mom guilt and talking about the guilt you felt in writing the book because <laughs> yes. it took you away from, you know, at the time it was your first son and then it was, you know, the birth of your second son. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I do love how like it was like you kind of walked the reader through that process because ultimately, you know, you do have a support person who stands by your side. That's your husband. He is, mm -hmm. you know, of course you, you describe him extremely supportive and, and very present, but it was also a spot that like you needed him to be in because this was important for you to do for, for, for your passion, for your career, for your desires. And, you know, your husband took on a special role during that time. And that like, you don't owe him anything. He owes you nothing. This is just, this is just life. And yeah. I, I just had to jump in there and say that because it was, <laughs> it was beautiful the way that you explained it in the book, because I think that every mom can relate to some extent about those times when the juggle just ends up with mom feeling guilt and shame and trying to identify, Hey, this is what's happening. And it's really not even true is, right. is, is important. Right. Yeah. So well, Dr. Millwood, this has been a true pleasure. Would you mind sharing with our listeners where they can purchase your book and also how they can connect with you? So the book is available wherever books are sold. So, you know, of course, there's Amazon. Um, and uh, for people who prefer to support in like a local independent bookseller, the, the website indiebound.org is really helpful because you can find a local bookstore and order the book that way. Great. Um, my website is mollymillwood.com. So people read about me there, read about the book there and find links for purchasing the book. Uh, and certainly people could contact me um, through my website, there's a you know place to submit a form or you can simply email directly uh, molly at mollymillwood.com if anybody has questions or comments for me. And I'm also on Instagram as molly.millwood.phd. And that's always a good place to go see my latest musings. <laughs> um, and there, there's a link there for the book as well. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for sharing with us your time, your expertise, and I would say above all your transparency, just being able to have this conversation with you and, and, and to know that this is exactly what's reflected in your book is, uh, is, is really truly an honor and a privilege to be able to speak with you. And again, as I mentioned before, this is the book that I recommend first and foremost to 
any friend, to any new mom, to any expectant mother. And I definitely think it's, um, it's something that we, we sincerely hope all of our listeners will consider. And on the note of the book, Emma and I are very proud that we have just reached 10,000 downloads, which in the world of podcasts sounds like a lot. So we feel like we're giving ourselves a big pat on the back and we're going to be doing a small giveaway for all of our listeners, um, that wish to participate. And the giveaway will be a copy of your book, Dr. Millwood. So we feel really excited to be able to to, to share that with um, with a member of our of our community, so want to just that take... is wonderful. Yeah, congratulations <laughs> on the ten thousand downloads. <laughs> Thank you. I'm I'm pretty sure it's 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 it might be a little bit of a, a you know a, a drop of water in in the ocean and in, in what I imagine a lot of podcasts get. But for us to know that um, we're getting to share you know voices such as yours, it it it's a gift. So. Well, you're doing a really wonderful (laughs) job. I loved your questions. So thank you. It was truly a pleasure for me. Well, thank you. And thank you so much to our ABCs of Matrescence community for tuning in and for listening. As always, you can find us on Instagram at ABCs of Matrescence. So wishing everybody a wonderful day and we look forward to connecting with you soon. Thanks again, Dr. Millwood.